0: Now we're looking at uh, chapter 18 and 19 of Jeremiah this evening. And with your outline in front of you, you will notice that I am suggesting a narrative drama in two acts covering chapters 18 and 19 together. I'm doing this in accordance with my approach to the book of Jeremiah. Maybe that We are exploring additional chapters in the prophet's narrative biography. His prophetic narrative biography, in fact, and thus as we have a biographical narrative here, in these two chapters, if you've had a chance to read over them, do you detect any difference between the narrative or the material in the 18th chapter as compared with the 19th chapter? Do you sense any difference in the plot or in the story when you compare the two accounts? You mean the previous chapters and these two chapters? No, just these two chapters. Okay. So putting, putting 18 and 19 together, okay. you notice any difference in the narrative plot? One versus the other. Go ahead, Ben. In chapter 18, in the, uh, the, the potter's house, and the potter making a vessel and then remaking it, that is indicated, indicative of the, of the sovereignty of God. But in chapter 19, God is clearly putting a responsibility for the state of things on the people. Because on the one hand, he says, if I uh, have intent for good and you go against that then you suffer and vice versa. Thank you, Ben. Uh, Ben hit his finger on uh, the essential difference. Uh, Let's notice that there are two different narrative events, but they are linked by the fact that they are uh, joined to something that has to do with the potter's efforts or the potter's house. Eighteen, chapter eighteen is, uh, more of a, a soft clay vessel, uh, a, a clay that is soft enough to be shaped and molded pliable enough to be refashioned. But you'll notice that the clay in chapter 19 is hard. It is fixed in a fixed form, which cannot be shaped or molded. Now, that's a clue to not only the unique significance of the two events, but also the fact that they are inseparably linked. There is a narrative paradigm here, and that's the reason we're going to look at both chapters together. While the chapters differ, they nevertheless complement one another as the prophets Narrative biography in chapter 18 is complemented by his narrative biography in chapter 19. There is an unfolding narrative drama in Jeremiah 18 and 19. Well, let's look at that drama in terms of the outline. And I have uh, constructed the outline on the basis of two acts, as I alluded earlier. And so let's begin with act one, which will be chapter 18, and scene one of this first act of our drama, and ask uh, the question, uh, where is the location of this scene in this drama? If we are filmmakers and we are on location, uh, where are we on location? In and pardon. Thank you. Lisa, in the Potter's house. Very good, as verse two indicates. <clears throat> All right. Now we might ask the question. <clears throat> Since Jeremiah is going to the potter's house, and that's going to be the location of this, uh, the scene or location of this narrative event, from whence does he come to go to the potter's house? In other words, where is he in verse 1 when the word of the Lord comes to him? We know he's going to the potter's house in verse 2, But where does he begin? Which may seem like a somewhat nonsensical question, but it has its own interest. And I think uh, when we look at one other factor, it may, in fact, be quite significant. Well, uh, Terry, your head went up. Gay uh, okay. of okay, Jerusalem? One of the gates of Jerusalem. Very good. All right. Now, if, as Terry suggests, we were thinking about where he has been in the previous chapter. Correct, Terry? He has been at the gates of Jerusalem. If you turn back to verse 19 of chapter 17, you will notice that the Lord speaks to him with respect to the gate where he's to stand and to make his comments and rebuke about the violation and desecration of the Sabbath day. However, there is a possibility that he's come from somewhere else in Jerusalem. And if you turn over to the end of chapter 19, at the end of these complementary narratives... Where do we find Jeremiah at the conclusion of the 19th chapter Spit it out Topaz Topaz No The court of the Lord's house. Yes. Verse 14 of chapter 19. Now, you remember when Lisa said the potter's house in verse 2 of chapter 18. Here at the end of chapter 19, we have the Lord's house. So we, in fact, have a suggestive. Inclusio, namely playing on the theme of the house and he ends up at the house of the Lord, is it conceivable that he came from the house of the Lord to the house of the potter to begin this narrative sequence? We do know that Jeremiah spent time in the courts of the Lord's house. His famous sermon in chapter 7 is preached there. When we come to chapter 26, we will also find that he is active there in the court of the house of the Lord again. So uh, he spends a good bit of time in his uh, biography uh, here. And so I don't think it's unreasonable to suggest that there is a symmetrical uh, circle around Jeremiah's travels. They're not long travels. I mean, he's going down to this potter's house and we'll suggest where that may have been in Jerusalem in a little bit. But he may have come from the house of the Lord as he ends up in the house of the Lord at the end of this sequence in chapter 19, verse 14. That's a suggestion. I'm not dogmatic about it, but it is an interesting use of that duplicate house of the potter, house of the Lord at the beginning and ending of this narrative. All right, now, what is the event within this first scene? In other words, at the potter's house, what event occurs? What's the action in our scene? Film director says lights, camera, action. All right, where's the action in this scene? Marge? The potter was making something that was spoiled. Potter is at his wheel and Jeremiah is watching the action as he's watching him work the clay at his wheel. And one of these uh, clay uh, pots was spoiled. And so he uh, he uh, remade it or at least uh, the implication is that he would refashion it. All right. So. That brings us to the second scene in this first act. We have Jeremiah at the potter's house, standing and watching the potter work at his wheel as he fashions the clay, even uh, refashions the clay which is spoiled under his hand or because of some other circumstance uh, as he turns the wheel. What's the second scene in this first act? You say to me, oh, that was the only scene I thought was here, that all of this is going on at the potter's house. Well, actually, no. what do you notice in verse 11 of this 18th chapter? what's going on in that 11th verse the Lord instructs him to speak to the men of Judah is he any longer at the potter's house no he's no longer at the potter's house he's at a place in which he can address the men of Judah and where would that be Terry Gates? Perhaps, Perhaps at the gates, correct. <clears throat> Perhaps at the gates of Jerusalem. All right, so <clears throat> we change locations in verse 11. <clears throat> now, namely, we go to a different uh, scene, uh, location, <clears throat> somewhere away from the potter's house, a place in, from which Jeremiah can address the nation. And what is the reaction to <clears throat> The location and the speech of Jeremiah in this location. What is the first reaction? There are, in fact, two reactions. What's the first reaction? He gives the speech in verse 11. You notice the phrase, Thus says the Lord, which sets off the speech. It's a declaration of God's own mouth. what's the reaction to that speech? Thus says the Lord. Verse 12, what's the reaction? It is rejected. It is refused. They say they will not. And they harden their evil hearts. Stubbornness here is an expression of hardening or obduracy. They're adamant they will not change their behavior. All right, so we have the people responding to Jeremiah. We actually have a, a, a dialogue. Jeremiah speaks on behalf of the Lord, and the people respond to the Lord and Jeremiah by indicating that they're not going to listen to what he's saying, and they're not going to change their ways. Now, that's the first reaction. There is a second reaction. And you notice in verse 13, we again have that phrase, thus says the Lord. <clears throat> this seems to be Jeremiah's response to their hard-hearted rejection in verse 12. And that response extends all the way to verse 17. But what do we have in verse 18? <clears throat> Marge? To go against They want to go against Jeremiah. They plot. They say, let us devise plans against him. And then they make a somewhat enigmatic statement, as the New American Standard translates it, let us strike him with our tongue. We'll come back to that later on. It's a very difficult Hebrew construction, so we'll take a look at it. But in any event, there's a definite reaction to the thus says the Lord again. And it's a reaction of rejection. Rejection now, not only of the message of the Lord through Jeremiah in verse 11, but now, or verse 12, but now a rejection of the prophet himself to the point of wanting to harm him, wanting to plot against him in some way, wanting to strike him in some way. All right. All <clears> right. <throat> This first act then, encompassing chapter 18, is an act in which the shaping of the clay, the fashioning and remodeling of the clay is related to Jeremiah's appeal, the Lord's appeal through Jeremiah to the people of Judah and their reaction to it, two reactions to it, In fact, a double rejection, not only of God's message, but also of God's messenger, even to the point of wanting to do the messenger of God harm. Any questions about Act 1, Scene 1 and 2? All right, now we come to Act 2, which is chapter 19. And once again, The first scene of this second act is on location where? where? Where is this act located? Terry, your brow was furrowed a little bit there. I leave it with hand in? Not yet. <laughs> Where does it begin? He has to go to the potter potter what? He has to go to a place where he can buy something from the potter's house or potter's shop. So, this could be the house of the potter, as it was in verse 2 of chapter 18. In other words, the potter's house where he makes his pots is also the place where he sells them. That would not be unusual an uh, enter- enterprising uh, businessman would have a small shop uh, on a street where someone would visit, and he'd be living in the back room. It still happens in the Middle East today. It's still, that's still the style of which some of them will do business. So uh, <clears throat> it, we can't uh, prove that conclusively, but it's possible that he's back in the same location as he was at the opening of Scene 1, Act 1. Now, here, the event in question is what? Mary Lou, it's what every woman likes to do, right? Because I've done it today. You did it today, did you? <laughs> <laughs> did you go? Did you go and buy a jar? <laughs> but you did shop. I did. Okay. All right. So the event here is him shopping for a jar. The Lord tells him to buy a jar, and so he does. <clears throat> Notice that the word, the phrase, "Hear the word of the Lord," follows this act in verse three. All right. So the first scene occurs at a place where a potter's jar can be purchased and Jeremiah purchases the jar as God instructs him. Now, scene two, Terry, where is scene two? Scene two is, must be the valley. valley of Hinnom. Valley of Hinnom, very good. And you know that from what Verse. The second verse. And what is another name for the Valley of Hinnom or for that same region or area? If you turn over to verse 6 of this chapter, what do you see there? Topheth. Topheth. Okay. All right. Now, let's think about the geography of Jerusalem for a moment. I'm just going to draw a circle the east side is the valley of the Kidron and the west side actually the southwest side is the valley of Hinnom the temple is up in the northeastern corner and so Jeremiah would itinerate between this area and the lower southeastern corner of the city of Jerusalem. Perhaps the potter's shop and his uh, business was also in this southeastern corner, contiguous to the valley of Hinnom. All right, now, the name Topheth for this valley is a reference to some other aspect of what was going on in that valley. Do you happen to remember what it was? They were sacrificing the children. children. Why did they call it topheth? Anybody remember that? Nobody really knows for sure what this word topheth means or what its origin etymology is but the suggestion is that it refers to the beating of drums and why would there be beating of drums in the Valley of Hinnom? to drown out the, sound of the... Drown out the sounds of the incinerating children yes being burned up alright it's not a very uh, uh, it's a ghastly thought but nonetheless that's one suggestion about why It's called Topheth as well as the Valley of Hinnom. All right. Now, in the Valley of Hinnom, what event or what action takes place? Jeremiah has purchased his jar. He's gone to the Valley of Hinnom. And what action takes place? Art? Proclaim the words that I tell you. Mm -hmm. He does that, but I'm thinking of something he does. Some act he performs. Terry? He smashes the jar, verse 10. All right. So... Notice in verse 11, another thus says the Lord phrase, only this time it's Lord Sabaoth, thus says the Lord of hosts. Scene two then, in the valley of Hinnom, and the smashing of the jar, and a declaration, thus says the Lord, as we had in verse three, at the end of scene one, hear the word of the Lord. All right, that brings us to scene three of act two. And where is this scene located? We've already talked about this, but you can pick it up again, I think, if you notice verse 14. He's in the court of the Lord. He's in the temple court, the Lord's house. And in verse fifteen we have another thus says the Lord of hosts phrase And what event occurs here in this location, namely in the court of the Lord's house, in the temple house of the Lord, what event occurs? Doesn't smash his jar, his jar is already smashed. He prophesies. He prophesies. What's the point of verse fifteen? That's the shortest sermon Jeremiah ever preached. Congregations were rejoicing because it only took thirty seconds. All right, this is a sermonic summary. Jeremiah preaches to the audience in the temple court of the house of the Lord a very abbreviated and succinct summary of what he has said throughout chapter 18 and 19. In other words, he sums up the whole message of these two chapters in this one short verse. All right, that takes us through the narrative drama. You notice that as we proceeded, there's a lot of action going on here. Jeremiah is moving from scene to scene, from one location to another location. There is drama in terms of conflict because every story progresses in terms of tension or conflict. That's what the plot diagram or the plot uh, parabola is all about in uh, literary analysis. And we've had that with respect to the response to his message in chapter 18. And obviously he's continuing <coughs> to find the same kind of resistance because he's proclaiming that message again here in chapter 19 in summary form. But there is a difference. There is a difference. He doesn't smash the jar in chapter 18. He's observing The clay being fashioned and molded and worked upon the wheel. But in chapter 19, he's got a finished hard product that is crushed and smashed by being hurled to the ground. The narrative is progressing. These two chapters cohere because... There is an integrally united, and coherent, complete narrative paradigm, complete narrative sequence. All right, let's think about that for a moment. There's two distinct events here because there are two distinct occurrences. So we have to perceive what it is that God is doing, to uh, this action by which he's demonstrating his own self-revelation to Jeremiah. All right, the narrative drama then, which unfolds from chapter 18 to chapter 19, is indicative of a narrative progression. In chapter 18, the potter's clay is in a reversible state. The potter's clay is in a reversible state. From outside, externally speaking, the clay can be reshaped, refashioned, remolded. From something not pleasing to the potter externally, the clay may be outwardly reformed so as to please the potter. In this soft and pliable condition, the clay is not yet fixed. The clay is not yet hardened outwardly. That is, externally speaking, the clay now is reversible in chapter 18. It is not yet irreversible. But... But the narrative progression or the rest of the story in chapter 19 presents the clay, externally speaking, to be in an irreversible state. From the outside, the clay cannot be reshaped, cannot be refashioned cannot be remolded. It has become hardened, hardened to a fixed condition, which is now as well as not yet irreversibly obdurate, irreversibly adamant, irreversibly stone cold. It cannot be molded and shaped. It can only be smashed and broken. Jeremiah therefore moves in the progression from a sinful nation outwardly in a pliable state capable of being shaped By the external benevolence, the charismatic invitations, as well as the prophetic warnings to repent, to turn unto the Lord, to flee the wrath to come. A sinful nation which hardens its evil and stubborn heart against the outward call. And the outward invitation of the word of God and willfully behaves according to its evil internal disposition, hell bent for destruction. Jeremiah's exhortations to these sinners, these sinners outwardly. Externally in a pliable and reversible state. Jeremiah's hortatory word that God wishes them good and blessing. Jeremiah's outward call to sinners to obey the voice of the Lord, to reform their ways and their deeds is Ineffectual. An ineffectual outward call. This nation of sinners spurns the outward call to salvation from God the Lord and His prophetic messenger. This nation of sinners hardens its heart more and more adamantly against the goodness and the blessing of the Lord. This nation of sinners fires its interior and its exterior with the stony stubbornness of its willful pleasures, willful and sinful pleasures which pour From an evil heart. They will not repent. They will not obey the Lord. They will not be saved. They will not because they will sin. They will indulge evil. They will act in accordance with the evil intentions of their evil hearts, their stone-cold evil hearts. They will not. They will not. The shift then, from chapter 18 to chapter 19, is the shift... from a God who outwardly called a sinful people to himself, by the promises to the patriarchs, by freeing a people unto himself in an exodus from slavery, by carrying a people for himself through a wilderness sojourn and feeding them on the way, A God who planted a people for himself in a Beulah land of milk and honey. A God who shepherded a people unto himself with a royal shepherd of Israel. A God who pitched his dwelling place in the midst of a people taken unto himself, manifesting his visible outward kavod glory. A God who sent his mouthpiece. A God who sent his very lips. A God who sent his very tongue in his servants, the prophets, to proclaim and to write his words of love, of grace, of life everlasting. But they would not. They would not all God's words and deeds outwardly down through the history of redemption none of God's words and deeds outwardly could change the sinful heart it must be of the spirit if we are to save the flesh The outward call, even to the pliable exterior, the outward call was ineffectual to reverse the state of the heart. The outward experiences and realities of the history of redemption were ineffectual, ineffectual to change the state of the heart. The external benefits of the people of God only habituated them to their own evil desires, presumption, and perversion, twisting the goodness of the Lord to their own destruction. Hortatory exhortation could not penetrate the hardened jar of clay. Only an effectual inner call, only an effectual inner change, only an effectual inner reversal could save the soul. Only an inner regeneration could transform the inclinations and desires of the heart of stone, hardened clay like stone. Only an inner new heart transplant, a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. Only a new heart fashioned in the image of God's grace. Shaped in the image of God's mercy, molded in the image of God's forgiveness, God's salvation, God's heaven. Only a new heart recreated in the image of Christ Jesus would be willing to obey the voice of its God and Savior only a new heart recreated in the image of Christ Jesus would have an inner willingness an internal love an inward desire to live out of the kingdom built up inside itself to live out of The kingdom planted inside itself to experience the kingdom promised from the foundation of the world and revealed inside itself by the almighty act of the affectional, effective grace of God. A kingdom of blessings. A kingdom of blessing thrice over in God the Father, through God the Son, by the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. Only an internal reshaping, remodeling, refashioning of that hard heart of stone would change its whole disposition, its whole inclination, its whole propensity, its whole proclivity. This is the kingdom into which the remnant, according to the election of grace, was delivered in the days of the prophet Jeremiah. And... It is the kingdom into which the inwardly and effectually called according to the election of grace have been delivered in these last days through our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here is the kingdom of a heart of flesh. Here is the kingdom of love and light. Here is the kingdom of heaven where every newborn heart echoes and re-echoes the song of the Lamb, hymns and re-hymns the chorus of the Lamb, sings more than the psalms of old, sings the hymn of the Lamb of God who sits at the right hand of the throne in glory. That sweet and precious Lamb of God by whose blood our stony hearts were washed whiter and softer than snow. That is a contrast in this narrative. It is not precisely a recognition of the absolute sovereignty of God It is a recognition of the hortatory as distinct from the inner effectual. That is the significance of this second symbolic act of Jeremiah in his prophecy. Picking up on the 13th chapter when he was instructed to go and buy a linen waistcoat. You'll notice what he's instructed to do here in chapter 19. Go and buy again. God repeating the symbolic act by demonstrating this profound distinction between the outer and the inner work of his hortatory, his charismatic, his proclamatory invitations and workings in the lives of his people. And so the distinction... <clears throat> Between chapter 18 and chapter 19, as your outline indicates, is a distinction between a redemptive historical paradigm in chapter 18, in which they are reminded of the past acts of God's benevolence and his goodness and his blessing, and they are invited to turn, enjoy, and embrace those that God has been appealing to them from the time of the patriarchs. And yet in chapter 19, the paradigm is determinative critical. What do I mean by determinative critical? By chapter 19, God is determined to bring the ultimate crisis, the crisis of judgment, calamity, destruction, and death because of the hardness of their hearts. The contrast between chapter 18 and 19 is the contrast between a hortative (coughs) exposition of God's appeal and a destructive determination of God's judgment in chapter 19. And finally, the contrast between chapter 18 and 19 is the contrast between the clay in a state of reversibility, potential reversibility, and the irreversible nature of the clay in chapter 19, so it is fit only for destruction. Jeremiah is doing what every messenger of God does in chapter 18. He is exhorting the audience to hear the word of the Lord and to turn and obey his call. But God himself knows those whom are chosen according to the election of grace. God knows those Whose hearts he will soften and give a heart of flesh. But those who refuse, Jeremiah proclaims the message of the shattered clay jar. It is for the hardness of your hearts that you have been destroyed. You are the source of your own destruction because you will not, you will not give up your sinful life, you will not give up your disobedience, you will not give up your perverse ways, you refuse, you will not. A greater than Jeremiah said the same thing, you will not come to me that you may have life. Will you? Will you come? If you come, have you come? Because he gave you the will to come. Would you harden yourself even as Judah of old hardened themselves and brought the certain calamity of destruction upon themselves and their generation. Jeremiah is preaching the gospel here. But the gospel must come with the effectual inner working of the election according to the remnant of grace. This is a visual demonstration of that paradigm. The clay which is still soft, malleable, reversible, not yet hardened, not yet fixed. But a clay Which left to itself becomes fired and hardened and resistant because of its stubborn willfulness. It is not a pretty picture of the sinful nature. And yet we are living in a generation when virtually day by day we see this picture blazoned across our internet screens, our TV screens, our newspapers, our media, we see the deep depravity and hardness of the evil of the human heart. How we need the grace of God. How we desperately need the grace of God, and so does this generation. Any questions about that broad outline there? Then you've come to the break time, so enjoy your snack and stretching your legs. We'll come back to take a look at some other details. Alright, if we're ready to resume, (coughs) Let's note one other very interesting element uh, with respect to the language of chapter 18. Notice in verse 7, God says that he will speak of a concordance Kingdom to uproot, pull down or destroy. And then in verse nine, he says he will speak concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant. Have you seen that language before? Some of you may have a cross-referenced Bible, and it may give you the reference in the margin. But if you turn back to chapter 1, Jeremiah 1.10, Jeremiah 110. You find that language repeated there to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, to overthrow, to build, and to plant. And if you will recall, that uh, chapter 1 is the call of the prophet Jeremiah to be the servant of the Lord and to speak the words that the Lord would put in his mouth That means that in this 18th chapter, when God is using that language, he's once again recalling Jeremiah to his original commission and reminding him of the call in which he was anchored. Namely, that this prophet of the Lord would bear the word of the Lord that the word of the Lord would be in the prophet as the prophet himself was in the word of the Lord. There's this mirror relationship then between prophet and Lord God, reciprocally Lord God and prophet. It's this interface, it's this union of relationship, it's this intimacy, the one with the other and the other with the one. It's important to keep that in mind uh, because uh, not only does it mean that Jeremiah does not speak on his own, but it means that what he speaks, he speaks in intimacy with the living God. And so we have these reflections of this kind of mirror paradigm uh, as we come down through the book. And here in chapter 18 is the next instance of it. There's one more, and that's in chapter 31, verse 28. And the interesting uh, feature of this occurrence in 3128 is that God projects a time when He will break down, overthrow, destroy, to build up and to plant. Now the significance of the expression in this chapter is that from chapter 31 to chapter 33 of Jeremiah, we have the central eschatological core of the message of the prophet. We're a ways away from getting to that in these Thursday night sections, but nonetheless, let give you something to look forward to. That message, that vocabulary recurring in the eschatological section of the book indicates that that is going to continue into the eschatological era, namely this language of tearing down and building up, of planting and destroying. It's going to go until the end of the eschaton. Or I should say the the semi-eschaton, that is the eschatological era which comes in Christ and the age of the church. Scott? Can you kind of repeat your idea of the mirroring that you're saying here again? Is it in that the Lord is... Planting and building up, and so is Jeremiah. Yes, well, he's commissioned to do this, and so now he's taking the words in chapter 18 on his own lips. So he was commissioned in chapter 1 to speak what God would say, and now here he is speaking it in chapter 18. Now, my point is that what God declares by way of this language, Jeremiah proclaims. So what is proclaimed by Jeremiah is the word of the Lord in union with the Lord of the word. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Okay. So to the reciprocal, he he is he's reflecting what God himself is declaring, as God himself is declaring what the prophet is proclaiming. So the two are intimately connected, <clears throat> and it, it is a. It is a, uh, shall we say, a face-to-face intimacy because God has put these words in his very mouth. In other words, it's as he's come face-to-face with Jeremiah and placed this vocabulary upon his own tongue. So that it is the the tongue of Jeremiah is the tongue of the Lord. That That's my point. Okay. <clears throat> All right. Now, um <clears throat> Let's uh, remember something we mentioned in the first hour, namely that this is the second prophetic symbolic act. The first one, the linen waist cloth uh, of uh, chapter 13, but uh, this is the second of five. <clears throat> And the next symbolic act will appear in chapter 24, the two basket of figs. Then in chapter 27, when Jeremiah will wear a yoke like an ox yoke and walk around Jerusalem. And finally, in chapter 32, when Jeremiah will buy a field in his hometown of Anathoth, he will buy it in the face of the destruction of the nation. All right, now, in verse 13 of chapter 18, we have this phrase, Virgin of Israel. Verses 13 and 14 are a little bit difficult to understand, uh, partly because of the obscurity of some of the Hebrew here. But uh, this phrase, Virgin of Israel, is fairly clear. Uh, What is the point of mentioning the Virgin of Israel. Well, the parallel in the next line is what makes this phrase particularly emphatic. The Virgin of Israel has done a most appalling thing. What is the appalling thing that the Virgin of Israel has done? to the harlot. Yes, she has prostituted herself before the idols, particularly the worship of the fertility god Baal. And uh, the uh, the poignancy of the term virgin here is the fact that she was reserved for the Lord. And so she has uh, uh, played the harlot by uh, 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 uniting herself to other gods and goddesses uh, promiscuously and has denied her status. And that is appalling. So we're back to this reference in Jeremiah's day to this fertility worship. Uh, which uh, was uh, uh, licentious, immoral, and abysmally pornographic. All right, now in verses 18 and 19, you'll notice that I uh, placed those two underneath one another. The phrase at the end of verse 18, give no heed, and then in 19, give heed. There's obviously an antithesis there, and you remember from our analysis that verse 18 is the response of the people who now want to plot uh, to hurt Jeremiah. But there's a little hook here in that uh, expression, give no heed and give heed. Jeremiah's statement then from verses 19 to 23 is a response to the statement that the plotters make in verse 18. They are, se- they are seamlessly connected. Now, one of the ways that I make that point is the liberals will come along and look at these so-called confessions of Jeremiah. We see one in, chap- in verse 19 to 23 of this 18th chapter. They'll look at these confessions and they'll say that they have been imported, they've been redacted, they've been Im- uh, edited in from uh, later uh, generation, later writers, even saying that they're post-exilic. So I note here that in this section, the seamless hook connects the two sections together. You can't redact it. That is, you can't intrude this section 19 to 23 into the chapter from some other source. It flows from the hook that is there in the uh, text 18 and 19 consecutive. Now, in that 18th verse, there is a list of theological leadership which reminds us of the religious authority in the areas of society and culture. Notice what these objectors are saying. They're saying that Jeremiah has no corner on theological law, theological intercession, namely priesthood, theological counsel, theological wisdom, that is being a a sage, uh, the theological word of God, and the theological office of a prophet. Because Jeremiah is predicting the destruction of the nation, they are taking issue with his prophet of doom message. And so, these uh, theological scions of the uh, 7th century BC are arguing that their religious insight, their wisdom, their horoscope approach to the future, their ethical treatment of what is appropriate to the law, uh, their priestly, Prophetic and perhaps a wisdom tradition trumps Jeremiah's negative, nasty, pessimistic message of destruction. It's not the first time in the history of the revelation of the Bible that the theological lobby has gotten it wrong. And it won't be the last time either which means that when you see the pied pipers of the theological world marching off to the tune of masses of followers, beware. Beware. Jeremiah wasn't leading mass demonstrations. Jeremiah was speaking the word of God. Almost into a vacuum. You are called to judge the spirits and to try the doctrines whether they be of God or not. You cannot do that unless you understand the Word of God and the history of the interpretation of that word, including the history of the interpretation of that word in your own Reformed tradition. The challenges before the modern Reformed church: does she have time for the Word of God? let alone time for understanding the history of theology. I leave the challenge with you. All right, now, also in verse 18, (coughs) we've underscored this plot. (coughs) And this is not (coughs) the first plot against Jeremiah. (coughs) You may remember that there was a previous plot against his life. (coughs) And who was responsible for that? Do you remember Marge? Well, at one time, his own family. It was his own family. Chapter 11 verse 19. <clears throat> in fact, chapter 12 verse 6, it's his own brothers and sisters. It's his own brothers, I should say. It's his own brothers who are involved in that. So the men of Anathoth, his hometown, were conspiring against him. If you turn back to the previous chapter 17 and you notice verse 18, Jeremiah is lamenting the fact that he's being persecuted. So he's also being attacked in chapter 17. It's something he's experiencing routinely, not only from those within his own household, but those outside of his household. And here in chapter 18, those in the positions of theological leadership in Jerusalem, from the uh, from the group of priests, from the group of other prophets, from the theological seminaries, we might say, in our own day, And what do they want to do to him? Well, they want to devise a plan against him, which I think is a nice way of saying they want to plot against his life. And then at the end of that verse, at least in the New American Standard, there's a translation of the very difficult Hebrew that let us strike him with our tongue. Now, that doesn't make much sense. I mean, we're not in the habit of uh, sticking out our tongues and trying to pull them far enough out to strike somebody with them. It could be a metaphor of simply verbally giving him a tongue lashing. But there's an interesting recent article in which a scholar draws attention to an ancient Near Eastern punishment. For instance, when a king would conquer his enemies and he wanted to... Uh, silence their objections or make sure that they weren't going to be uh, producing any propaganda against him in the future, he would cut out their tongues. Is it possible that what these plotters were suggesting was that they were going to strike Jeremiah's tongue by rendering him silent, cutting out his organ of speech, So that he would be left speechless and mute. I like that suggestion. It's a very interesting uh, insight into a very difficult Hebrew construction. I'm not saying it's absolutely right, but it makes sense in the context. They don't want to hear what he's saying. They want to shut him up. What better way to silence him than to cut out his tongue? And it didn't happen just in the ancient Near East, it still happens. It still happens. It happened in the Second World War. It's still happening in certain parts of the world today. A way to punish an offender, punish your enemy, cut out his tongue. All right. Any question about any of that? In verse 20, Jeremiah indicates that they have dug a pit for him. Now, it is possible that these plotters had actually begun to excavate a pit into which they would cast Jeremiah. You'll notice that it is duplicated in verse 22. It's also possible that Jeremiah is being a little bit proleptic here. Was Jeremiah ever thrown into a pit? Ben? What? When? What? What kind of a pit? A pit a of mud. Mud and muck, yes, yes. And it's not actually called a pit. It's called a what? But it is, in effect, a pit because it is a hole in the ground. It was a cistern. It was a cistern. So, that occurs in chapter 38, and he's rescued from that cistern by, do you remember, Ben? Yeah, they sewed some sheets and pulled up. Yes. Yeah. What was his name? Yeah. Where was he from? He's an Ethiopian. He's a Cushite. Eben Melek, who rescues... Jeremiah from the cistern, from suffocating in the muck into which he was sinking. So uh, this does remind us that uh, this phrase, dug a pit, is actually going to come to pass at some point in Jeremiah's career. Verse 23, the word... For, yeah, go ahead. you find a cistern for us in those days so we understand more clearly? Well, there are two kinds of cisterns. Uh, there are those that had a, a porcelain or uh, clay uh, sealed bottom. So they were built over rock and then they were plastered, uh, but they would crack and leak. Uh, nonetheless, that was one type of cistern. And the other cistern was just dug down into the ground, so they would, you know, saturate the ground. Uh, uh, with water and so saturated that the water would then build up and they would have fresh water at the top of that uh, ground level. And I think that's what's true here in chapter 38. In other words, this was what my, one might call an open cistern that had just been dug into a pit of the ground so that they could have fresh water in that particular location. And it became so... Uh, saturated, that it, it it became like a quagmire, and so he sank down in it, to no way of telling how deep it was. Or the other possibility was an abandoned cistern that had been filled in with dirt, and you know over a period of time had filled up with uh, drainage water, runoff water, and so it had become uh, a quagmire. Uh, <clears throat> can't actually solve the you know the, the the precise way in which that cistern became a death trap for Jeremiah, but those are the possibilities. All right, the word forgive in verse 23. If some of you have a marginal note in your Bible, uh, it may say cover over or atone. The Hebrew word here is kippur. Does that ring a bell in your memories? Kippur? Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, correct. And Yom Kippur, is uh, the Day of Atonement, is laid down in what book of the Bible, Ben? In, uh, Leviticus. in Leviticus. What chapter of Leviticus? The early I'm challenging you. It's almost dead center. It's in chapter 16 of Leviticus and the, uh, the ritual of the Day of Atonement which is the high day of sacrifice in the Jewish calendar in the Old Testament. And, of course, is referred to in the book of Hebrews uh, uh, when the high priest goes in behind the veil of the tabernacle or the temple once a year, but not without blood. Notice that that word here, to cover over, as the high priest would cover over the uh, mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant, <coughs> He would sprinkle blood to cover it as a symbolic representation of the sin of Israel being covered over. So here is um, uh, Jeremiah asking God not to cover over the sin of those who are persecuting him, those who are uh, reaping vengeance or plotting against him. Alright, right, now, I've outlined uh, verses 19 to 23 as very simple simple chiasm. Uh, This is a chiasm of my own invention. Though there are others who have suggested chiasm in this section, a chiasm uh, from there... uh, uh, writings and study, which I don't think is valid because uh, they cheat on the, uh, the uh, Hebrew text. Uh, I'm trying not to cheat on the Hebrew text here. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm pulling out the things that are parallel and exactly duplicate. Notice that when he speaks in 19 and 20 and in 22 and 23, he speaks for himself. Lord, give heed to me. Lord, you know us their designs against me. So the me pronoun follows verse 19, verse 20, verse 22, and verse 23. The pronoun changes in the central part of the chiasm. He asks for the sword in 21b and 21e to be directed against them or their. And in 21-D, which is the center of the chiasm and the hinge of of the reversal of the chiastic paradigm, he asks that the Lord visit them, let their men be smitten to death. Me, them. And what is going on here with this language of vengeance and punishment and even destruction and death? destruction by the sword. What's going on here? How How is this godly prophet uh, uttering these imprecations against his persecutors? Well, once again, we must remember the mirror relationship of the prophet and God. Jeremiah is drawn into the narrative of God's determination, his determination to destroy the nation of Judah and Jerusalem, as well as destruction of those who have opposed his servant, the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah then speaks as God speaks. He speaks not on his own authority. He speaks on the authority of the justice of God who will rightly and justly deliver the wicked over unto death. Therefore, Jeremiah is, as it were, ratify, ratifying God's own justice and wrath. Even as we will judge the angels. Even as we will ratify the judgment of God in the damnation of the reprobate angels. Even as we will stand in the judgment with Christ and the elect and we will rejoice at the damnation of the wicked. Not because we have some kind of insidious delight in terror or horror, but because we will praise the justice and righteousness of God. We will say, let God be right. And everyone else close his mouth and every knee bow before the righteousness of God. That is a very difficult concept for a 21st century audience to grasp. But nonetheless, it is what the Bible declares. And Jeremiah is drawn into the drama of this, not as some vindictive, I'll get even with you. That is not the spirit of this language. He is drawn into the drama of the righteousness and justice of God. If you have trouble with Jeremiah saying, let God be just in bringing back the death of the wicked, if you have problems with that, you've got problems with Jesus Christ, who says that the wicked will not come out of that place where their fire does not go out. You count them up. The Lord Jesus, the Son of God, talks about eternal damnation in hell three times more than any other writer in the Bible. Three to one. I believe he knows what he's talking about. And therefore, if we're going to have trouble with Jeremiah's imprecations, we're going to have trouble with the God of the Old Testament's imprecations, and we're going to have trouble with Jesus of Nazareth's imprecations. You can't have it both ways, saying Jesus is a God of peace and love and not a God of justice and wrath He's not like the Old Testament God. You can't do that without being a Marcionite, which is a second-century Christian heresy, or a dualist, which is also a second- and third-century Christian heresy. You're going to pit one, uh, one God against another, or one person of the Godhead against another. This is absurdity. This is absurdity. The consistent testimony of the Bible is what Paul says to the Thessalonians, flee the wrath to come. It is coming. Make no doubt about it. It is coming. And if we're miserably misled on this, what do we lose? Nothing. If the atheist is right and death is just simply a going into nothingness, what do we lose? Nothing. But if we are right, if we are right, What do they lose? Everything. The horror of eternal torment. Please, please, generation of the 21st century, flee the wrath to come. It is as certain as the words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord God through the prophet Jeremiah. Now in chapter 19 verse 1, we have this Hebrew word for the jar that Jeremiah is instructed to purchase. And the Hebrew word is buckbuck. Buckbuck, 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 buckbuck. This is like you pouring water out of a jar, isn't it? Buckbuck, 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 buckbuck. It's an interesting onomatopoietic word, namely that the Hebrew word sounds like the thing itself. Sounds like what happens when you pour water out of a jar or a jug. So it's a suggestion that the Hebrew term came from the sound of what was happening with the instrument or the vessel as it was emptied. Can't be proved, but it's an interesting thought. And so it raises the question of onomatopoeia. And Mary Lou is asking me in the break about the occasion of the word hiss in chapter 18. And it occurs in this passage because the Hebrew word is a ps- ps- word. It just sounds like hiss. Another automatic poetic expression. All right. Now, in verse two of chapter 19, we have the mention of this potsherd gate. It's a hop-box, We'll ask Professor Sanborn. What's a hopbox? Um, hopbox Yeah. What's a hopox ligamen? Ligamen. Well, it's. Or what's the Greek word oh, hopbox? Right it? now, I don't know why. What? Oh, you, you, you've gone blank. <laughs> or what's the Greek word hop-box mean? Uh, very frequent in the book of Hebrews. Oh yeah. Is the that hopox? Is You know, something, you know, I forgot. I don't... My New Testament professor is drawing blank. blank. <laughs> I, I, I won't repeat the number of times I've drawn a blank. Okay. All right. Hapax <laughs> means it only occurs once. And the Greek word hapax means once in Hebrews, once and for all. The finality in the book of Hebrews of the work of Christ. <laughs> and this phrase, this term potsherd gate only occurs once in the whole Bible. So we're left wondering where it is. Mm, Well, I wonder, since he was supposed to smash it in the Valley of Hinnom, I'm wondering if this potsherd gate is near the potter's house or near the place where maybe they made these ceramic jars. And that was down here near the Valley of Hinnom because the Valley of Hinnom was also a garbage dump. And if your clay jar didn't turn out right, it got fired out or collapsed in the kiln or whatever, you just throw it over the, over the edge of the, of the valley and it you know, smashed down in that garbage dump. I I don't know for sure, but anyway, this is one possible suggestion, and it's not only I think this, there are other scholars who think that it may have been located down here, and that's the reason for its occurrence in this story, even there in that verse about the Valley of Hinnom. All right, in 195, we have this horrible description of the offering of the children as burnt offerings, notice to Baal, uh, we've, we've noted that Chemosh and Moloch, the gods of the Moabites and Ammonites, also accepted child sacrifice as the Phoenicians did, uh, in Carthage, the uncovering of these, uh, urns full of little baby bones, uh, at least 300 of them they've they've uncovered in archaeology going back into the pre-Roman period. So we know the child sacrifice was uh, practiced across the uh, ancient Near East, even to uh, Western Africa, Western North Africa. Uh, But Baal's involved in this horror as well. And in verse 9, the cannibalism that will result and did result as a result of the siege of Jerusalem. uh, Here's one place where it's uh, mentioned in the text of Jeremiah, is also mentioned in the book of Lamentations. Verse 12. I will treat this place and its inhabitants so as to make this city like Topheth. Now, why does he say he's going to make the city like Topheth? We've we've said that Topheth is another name for this valley of Hinnom. But he'll make the whole city like Topheth. That's what he's saying. Why? Why? Well, we already know that they burned babies in the Valley of Hinnom. What else did they do in the Valley of Hinnom? Buried. Yes, they threw bodies into the Valley of Hinnom. They buried or actually threw corpses there. So God is saying that he's going to turn Jerusalem into a burial field. There are going to be heaps of corpses. And because there are going to be so many corpses piled up, there's no way they're going to be buried, which means that the whole city's going to be unclean. For an unburied body is unclean. Jerusalem then is going to be like Topheth because God is going to make the whole city unclean. Piled high with rotting flesh. Verse 13 of chapter 19. The houses on whose rooftops they burn sacrifices to the host of heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but I've got a slightly gabled roof, and I don't think I'd want to be burning anything on my roof, and let alone trying to stand up there very long, uh, except to put uh, moss beware on the gable so that I don't get that moss on my shingles. Uh, and then I don't have to pressure wash it again, which I had to do about eight years ago with a rope tied around myself. Anyway, <laughs> um, the roof was flat, and so they could live on the rooftop, So they used the rooftops for living space, and they also worshipped on the rooftops. And here he's describing what they worshipped. They worshipped the host of heaven. Mainly they're worshipping the sun, moon, and stars, and the astral deities. All right, any questions on uh, 18 or 19, any uh, sections there? Go ahead, Scott. I was curious, back in this chiasm that you put together, with the chiasm, and with the thought that Jeremiah is identifying with the Lord and the Lord Jeremiah, is, is there any indication in the text in Jeremiah, besides the way that God is doing it, uh, by, besides the fact that it's representative being done to Jeremiah, that the people would like to do this to God himself? Hmm. Uh, that's an interesting thought. Um... Uh, no, uh, Professor Sanborn, as usual, you ask me things that I've not thought about, so I, 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 would, I would have to pause to <laughs> contemplate that, and I'm not going to hold everybody up uh, while I do. Uh, but notice what Scott is suggesting. Is the mirror relationship also drawing the antagonists into the mirror, which is an interesting suggestion. Any other questions or comments? Chapter 20 next week. Pashur. Close with prayer. Father, we do thank you not only for the outward call of the gospel of repentance and salvation. But we thank you for the power of your spirit that has broken our hardened hearts and softened them into hearts of flesh by the goodness of your grace. We bless you for the sake of Christ and on account of his finished work, which is able to wash our hard hearts and make them soft and responsive to your call. We pray. Lord, for our generation. We pray, Lord, for our time. We pray, Lord, for the men, women, and children of this age, that you will call them not only outwardly, and more and more of them as the gospel goes to the ends of the earth, but you will also accompany that call with the effectual power of your spirit to turn their hard hearts from darkness to light. Cause them to love the Lord of grace and mercy and then to walk as sons and daughters of the kingdom of heaven, seeking the love and peace and joy of the fruits of the Spirit as well as the joy of the communion of the saints. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask your blessing upon it as we seek to penetrate it, to understand it, to live in it and out of it. And we pray, Lord, that this blessing may redound to your glory and not to ours. For the sake of Christ Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen.